0: Setting the bar so high for how you need to look when you come in here because I'm telling you what. Whew. Ah, well, this morning um, we're gonna we're gonna do our best um, to tackle a um, um, a topic that, quite frankly, would take a large, large, large amount of time. To really do it justice, but I'm going to try my best. Um, we spoke on Thursday night. Um, I guess what would be considered the part one of this study, and we looked um, on Thursday night at the the um, the idea of the fear of man, or what we've heard defined as being the fear of man, um, and um, the 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 title, if you will, of these two has just been nothing to fear. Uh, I think that we would all agree. With that concept, I think we would all agree that God doesn't want us to be fearful. I think that part of where the disconnect actually happens, though, is in the understanding of how important to him it is that we don't fear. I think that he doesn't want us to be. I think that we think uh, I'm not saying that well. Our thought is that he just doesn't want us to be afraid, almost like we don't like it when other people cry. There's very little, very little that's more uncomfortable to you. uh, I'll just maybe not to you to me that when then when I'm talking to somebody, you know, especially a random person. Have you ever had that happen where you're like talking to somebody and at a restaurant or at the grocery store or wherever? And for whatever reason, you're like, how are you today? And they turn around. They just start sobbing. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. Um, And we kind of say, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Really what we mean is, please stop, please stop. Like, you know, and we kind of think about do not fear like that. Like he's saying, just don't be afraid, everything's going to be okay, as a comforting statement. When in reality, if we believe what the Bible says about fear, it is very likely the most... um, one of the most, I, I don't like absolutes, one of the most damaging and detrimental things to who we are. It opens the door for condemnation and shame. It opens the door for disappointment. It opens the door for, um, for a lifestyle that actually seeks to prohibit us from being connected to, To who he is, and in doing so, never actually find who we are. And if we believe what the Bible says, we're going to all have fear. Part of what I always struggle with, and I'm not gonna intentionally go after some things that we've thought before, but I'm gonna go after some things we've thought before. Part of what I always thought was that fear was the opposite of faith and that so the best way for me to become less fearful was to speak faithful so something is happening i'm feeling scared i just need to really stir up my faith and i don't know how i think i do that but we think that faith is this quotient or capacity we're like you know and it just stirs and faith Fear is like, whoa, oh you know, right? Mucinex, you know, and like, and then just takes off, you know? Uh, that, that's kind of what we think. And that's really not what happens. In fact, it would be my suggestion that it's not only because fear is so detrimental and damaging to us that he doesn't want us to be afraid. But it's because in the avenues in which fear takes up residence, his love is not allowed or invited. It cannot be. In fact, I said this on Thursday night, that every decision we make in life is going to be motivated by love or fear. Every decision. Every single decision. And we said, th- we said it this way, that fear is the second most powerful uh, uh, um, force in the universe. Only love can motivate you to encounter or experience pain on behalf of people you care for. Only fear could cause you to hurt the people that you love in order to protect yourself from pain. Love is the only thing that would make you knowingly encounter pain so that somebody you care for doesn't have to. In fact, even the idea of being in in a relationship with somebody, I don't care if it's a friend or if it's a romantic relationship, whereby you're in love with them, that in and of itself requires a measure of vulnerability and surrender and in doing so you're opening yourself up to pain. I assure you, if you never fall in love, you'll never be hurt. It's just that simple. If you never love, you'll never be in you'll never hurt. However, what happens is there is you cannot be fearful and fruitful. You cannot be in fear and in joy, and ultimately fruitfulness. And so what happens is these things work against one another, and we cannot go through uh, a study to understand fear, whether it's fear of man or what we're going to speak about more this morning, fear of God. We can't go through that topic without first having an absolute understanding that love is the alternative. Period. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't even say faith casts out fear. Loved us. And to the degree that you open yourself up to love, to the degree that you open yourself up to passion and to um, some exchange and relationship, in that degree, fear is going to be faced. Because I'm not, I, I honestly believe that um, there is a natural kind of stirred up boldness that happens where you just kind of, I don't care, I'm not scared, my favorite Ain't skeered, that's S-K-E-E-R, skeered,
1: of nothing.
0: That's just not true. The number one fear of humanity, we talked about this on Thursday night, that psychologists pooled together all of their information resources and found the number one fear of humanity is not even pain, physical pain, or death. Those two didn't make the top five. Top two. Why? Because you were created in God's image, and God has never been alone. You are a relational being at the root of who you are. In fact, the very first thing in Scripture that God ever says was not good was you alone. God saw that Adam was alone and that it wasn't good. Because God has never been alone. We're created in his image to then function with him and to represent him in that way. So I want to say one thing to you as we get into this. Because this is really, really, really important. It's going to sound really, really, really dumb and elementary. God likes you.
1: Fond of you.
0: We really have no issue with the fact that God loves us. We know that. We say that over and over and over again. But that's what he kept telling me this morning during worship. Repeatedly, he would just say, Tell them that I like them. Because many of us have been told for years that God loves us, but he doesn't necessarily like it. have a mentality that says that God loves us because He has to. It's the rules. But he doesn't he
1: wouldn't cross the street to walk down the sidewalk with me He actually likes you.
0: The reason you can be his favorite is because he singularly puts you in his mind. And in the same way with your children, I could ask a really unfair question to many of you parents in the room today. Who's your favorite kid? The only, only fair answer is, my favorite is the one I'm thinking about right now. It's the best answer I've ever heard to that question. Because really, you're not... You don't have favorites. You're not, you can't. I mean, it just doesn't work that way with your kids. I mean, there's so many things that you love about each of them. And, it, and within that, the only answer that's fair is the one I'm thinking about right now, the one that my heart is beating for right now, is your father any different? I would suggest to you that he's the one that gave you that mother heart, and he's the one that gave you that father heart that allows you to feel like that one you're thinking about is your favorite. Because at this moment, you're in his heart.
1: 17.7.
0: We're going to start with this before we get real. Matthew 17.7. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. I'm going to ask this question and then read to you a little bit. The question is, does God want you to fear him? Every question, and frankly, I really don't even intend to answer that question this morning. But I hope to provide some questions and some thoughts that allow us to evaluate who he really is and why we've thought some of the things we've thought. This morning, we're going to tackle what could be the most difficult topic we've ever discussed. We're going to try to unpack the thought of the fear of God, or maybe better the question, should I fear God? This is a very dangerous question to be asking, as most questions are when we are evaluating our theology. But the reason I find these questions so important is because they are not questions of what is my purpose in God, what are my gifts, or how do I find God in prayer? All of those things are vital to know. But these questions are much, much deeper as they address the very nature of who God is. I would suggest that until we reconstruct this correctly, we will continue to miss the mark with questions like, what is my purpose and how do I prophesy? It is my opinion that it is healthiest to ask these questions in a time of spiritual life and vitality, not in moments of loss and disappointment. We're not asking these questions today because we're having a crisis of faith where God's abandoned us. I've never been healthier in him than I am right now. We've never as a church been healthier than we are right now. Typically, you ask questions like about who God is in crisis of faith moments, right? You lose somebody, something happens, and you begin to ask questions like, does God really love me? Is he really good? Is he really there for me? In my opinion, the, the safest way to deconstruct and reconstruct who he is is in a healthy environment. Honestly, deconstruction of any kind is healthiest when we are healthiest. That is not to say loss and disappointment will never bring about such times of unknowing and undoing, but I prefer the process. I prefer to process this as Isaiah, in his presence, before his face, saying I am undoing. this process and always best done before his face never running away he intends for us to process these things in his face not running away you see the deeper point in this moment is who is he we can agree that we are called to represent him Saul of Tarsus agreed and believed that he was called to represent him while he was persecuting and killing Christians. Paul or Saul, at that moment, would have argued and agreed that it was his job to represent God. Westboro Baptist Church agrees and believes that they are called to represent him. But what is the him we are representing? In case you don't remember, Westboro Baptist Church is the church that protests everything. They're the ones that tells gays on a regular basis that God hates them, and they're going to hell. They're the ones that stand outside of... Uh, Planned Parenthood and tell them that if you abort your baby, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity and God hates you as a person and as a mother. And they believe and
1: here's the kicker, guys. And they use this to back it up that they're representing him.
0: Perry Stone. Has anybody ever heard of Perry Stone? Perry Stone is one of the foremost Uh, thought about, mentioned, seen Bible teachers, theologians. In fact, some cases they call him an apologist. Perry Stone um, has spent, he says, I'm quoting him. This is his version. I'm going to let him tell the story. He says he has spent 40,000 hours studying end times theology, the book of Revelation, 40,000 hours.
1: Does that matter if the framework is wrong?
0: If how you see God is wrong, you can study something from now until eternity and find scripture and proof to back up your improper form of who God is. Because what God does has to come out of who God is. And for the most part, we've got that wrong we've gotten really good at what God is and tried to step around who God is because who God is, according to what we've been told, is very, very, very conflicted. I want to ask you this question. I wasn't going
1: to do this. Ashley prayed for me on Thursday night, so I'm still feeling it.
0: Do you realize that in Jewish, in Israel, Culture, Jewish culture, do you realize they did not have any consideration, any religious teaching, any cultural teaching that had anything to do with afterlife issues? I'm going to say that a different way. They gave no care or consideration to heaven or hell or what would happen after you died.
1: Zero. Do
0: you realize that in the book of Acts, And in fact, for the first 50 years of early church teaching that we have recorded, both from the scriptures and other books, do you realize never once do we find a recorded scripture where any of the early church fathers ever taught a sermon that mentioned afterlife issues? Who goes to heaven, who goes to hell was never mentioned. Now, tell me what the framework of our gospel revolves around today. Who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? I'd like to ask you a really crazy question. It's Ashley's fault. If you get to heaven and there are Muslims there, are you going to want to stay? It's just a question. I'm not saying there will be. This is on Facebook and everywhere else. I'm not saying there will be. I'm not trying to be reckless. I'm not trying to be hypocritical. I'm not trying to be heretical. But what my point is. Is if that is why you're serving him. Why you're serving him is not worthy of him. I'd like to suggest to you that if you can't preach the gospel without mentioning the afterlife, then you probably don't know how to preach the gospel. That believe that as soon as you die, life is over and you get covered with dirt are right. And you knew that right now. Would you keep doing what you're doing? Because Jesus didn't talk about afterlife issues. In fact, Jesus did talk about the kingdom of heaven more than anybody else in the Bible, but he was never talking about one that came in the afterlife. He was always talking about one that came now. So while I'm not in any way suggesting that that um, that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, while I'm not in any way suggesting any of that kind of stuff, we're not getting into that. That's not the point. The bigger point of the matter is... We've got to really deal with who God is. Who do we believe he is? And if we can't separate that, then what we think about him is going to be totally skewed. And if what we think is that just because somebody else got sprinkled and I got dunked, that they're going to go to hell and I'm going to go to heaven, we've got problems. If right now you found out that heaven and hell, neither one existed, would you want to lead somebody and introduce them to Jesus after that? and if you wouldn't you're not seeing the point because i would like to suggest to you that if you really believed if we really believe that as many people were going to go to hell as we say we believe are going to go to hell and that god's going to keep them alive forever so that he can torture them we wouldn't be here right now we would be out there beating down doors to try to get them to go to heaven we've got issues But the central issue we have to get under our belt is, who is he? Is he angry with us? Is he violent? Is he vengeful? Because what honestly I've found more and more is that the God I've been taught about from the Bible, in many cases, does not adequately represent the God I've experienced in my father. And so one of those two things is right, and one of those two things needs some adjustment in its perspective. Westboro Baptist Church agrees and believes that they are called to represent him. But what is the him that we are representing? Are we representing a God that prefers perfection and authenticity? Are we representing a God that values knowledge over relationship? Are we representing a God that but for the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus would send us to hell to be kept alive and tormented by him in some type of almighty eternal Auschwitz? Is that the God that we believe in? You could answer that it doesn't matter. I've prayed the magic prayer. Here's the real kicker. I've prayed the magic prayer. I've said the magic words. I pay my tithes. I love God and have done everything necessary to uh, to secure my eternal passage into heaven and safety from such a horrendous torment. In other words, I'm good, so I don't have to worry about what's. Most of all, that doesn't reflect the nature of Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you follow that pattern out, which was lost was defined. Excuse me. What was lost was defined as the kingdom. Do you realize that the thing that was lost was the kingdom? The number one message far and away, not even close, nothing in a close second place. As far as messages that Jesus taught kingdom, bringing the kingdom, establishing the kingdom, what does the kingdom look like? And none of that, if accurately read, has anything to do with what happens on the other side of clouds. In fact, do you realize that in two passages, two verses next to one another? Heaven, air. Spirit and sky. Heaven, air, spirit, and sky are all translated from the same Greek word. What's that mean? Well, potentially what it means in that context is some of the stuff that we've talked about for the sweet by and by is supposed to be now. Why do we need the tree of life to bring healing to the nations if it's after Jesus has raptured us up and started this this wonderful life that we get to have where we're going to be just sitting at a table somewhere and enjoying the, the best Bordeaux that God has to offer, and the rest of everybody else who has maybe heard of them, maybe hasn't, they're being tormented forever. Why does it matter? Because the reality is, at that point, the nations aren't going to need healed. If we believe the nations are able to be healed, then we have another whole theological discussion to have. Do we get to go to hell and witness to people? You do realize that we wouldn't be the first in the Christian church to teach that. So if that is the case, then we've got a whole other thing. You see how our, our theology just steps all over itself. So what we have to start with is not what he does. It's always who he is. Jesus was so utterly unconcerned with afterlife issues. He took a few opportunities to describe what his father was like in picturesque detail. None of that ever defined him as someone to be afraid of. The clearest picture we have of the father is found in the story of the redeemed. Son, many of you might know this is the story of the prodigal son. Most of us would agree that the actions of the father in that story are loving but entirely reckless. In that story, in fact, by our definition, we would call the father an enabler. Son wants to head to Vegas and ask for all of his inheritance. Dad, I'm going to go spend this on booze chips and women and he gives him the inheritance and when he comes back do you realize that when he returns there is no measure of holding back that the father ever does with the son in fact we would look at it based on our society and and the way we view things that he would need to pay for his malfeasance there's a price to pay. You've made a mistake. You've got to own up to it. There's a price to pay. There's a, some type of penalty that needs you now. You've done. You've left. You've blown it. You've, you've given our family a bad name. You've done this. You've done that. So as a result of that, yeah, you can come back and you can live here, but you have to live out here in the servant's quarters, and you have to earn it again. The father runs to him with a ring and a robe. If we're not clear about this, that ring signified every buying power and authority that the father had. They didn't carry around. They didn't have Apple Pay. So what they would use to seal a commitment was their ring. He immediately put the ring back on him. We in the natural right now would consider that enabling. We would, if a parent was doing that, we'd say, well, I just, I don't really think that they know what they're doing. I mean, I know they love their kid, but don't they realize that that's reckless? Giving him everything back again. What if he goes and blows it all again? What is he going to do? The father gives you everything again every single time with no consideration if you'll do it right. That's who Jesus said your father is. That is the clearest picture that God gives of himself through Jesus. God went so far as to show that when he had this opportunity to show us his nature in human action, he sent Jesus. In Jesus, we see who God really is. He is long-suffering, he is patient, he is kind, he gives compassion where no one else would. In fact, he is the most peaceful and inclusive figure ever to be recorded. I'm going to say that again. He is the most peaceful and inclusive figure ever to be recorded. He deals with people who believe everything else, who are heathens by every regard and never actually invites them to change what they believe in order to have him. Samaritan woman did not believe what Jesus was. And Jesus just said, this is what life looks like. That woman went on to change the world. The disciples, before they actually established a Jerusalem church, they met with this woman named Saint Fultini. Saint Fultini is the Samaritan woman. So, the question is now, who is he? Because as we read in Matthew 17, Jesus regularly says to us, do not be afraid. Do not fear spoken by God throughout the entire Bible, whether by the Spirit of God, whether by Jesus, or whether by God's voice himself is don't be afraid. And do we really think that what God would want is to tell us to not be afraid, but be afraid of me? Doesn't that seem a little indulgent? Thing except for me. And if we really do believe I, 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 this is a little bit it's a little bit of hyperbole but think about it this way. We have some great parents in the room. We have some incredible parents in the room. And is there any parent in the room that if you had to choose how your child viewed you, being scared of you would be in the l- top list of what you would want from your child? To be terrified of you, to be fearful of you would be really high up on the list of how you want to be viewed as a parent. Well, here's where the hyperbole comes in. Do you think you're better than him? Do we think for a moment that we're more loving and
1: compassionate and caring than God? We spoke on...
0: um, Thursday night regarding Peter and regarding the difference in that the Old Testament very frequently, or not frequently, the Old Testament on several occasions um, showcases what to do with fear. And in most cases, it describes what to do with fear as overcoming fear through some type of word that would come to them. You know, the, the, the spirit of the Lord would come, an angel of the Lord would come and say, be of good courage, and, and they would be strengthened from that. And what we talked about was how that... It's it really looks to be different because you don't find love dealing with fear in the Old Testament. Um, But what I would like to suggest to you is just very simply this, that everything in the Bible is leading up to who God says he is. Who God says he was
1: is Jesus. Let me
0: say it this way. There wasn't a need if the only point of Jesus' life was to come and die on the cross so that we could go to heaven. He wouldn't have needed a whole lifetime to do it. 33 years or whatever it might have been. The point or part of the point of that entire ministry time of Jesus that we have recorded was God showing us who his nature is. I'm not saying that Jesus replaced God. I'm saying that God put on skin to demonstrate to us in the most natural and, and, and tangible way possible who he really is. And everything in the Old Testament, everything that leads up to that, has to bow its knee to who God says that he is through Jesus. Jesus is what God had to say about himself. And anything about the nature of God that we don't find in the nature of Jesus, we should be concerned about. It's just that simple. And, and honestly, it's no, you, you look at the Old Testament, all of them talk about how it was leading up to Jesus. I'm not saying that Jesus then replaces what we find in the Old Testament because we know that he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. But what I do believe is that you have in the Old Testament incomplete ideas of who God is that is made complete when God shows up. It's like somebody watching a movie and then recounting the plot to someone else. Or somebody going to see the movie. It's going to be incomplete. I'm not saying there's not good stuff there. I'm not saying we should throw it away. I'm just simply saying it's incomplete. And within this idea, Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew 17:7. 7. He looks at the disciples and says, don't be afraid. So. When you see that, we know and we agree that love casts out fear. We find that in First John. What actually I believe happens is in every instance, even in the Old Testament, when they didn't know this is what was happening, when the word of the Lord would come upon them, we mentioned this Thursday night, that the word of God is spirit. Literally, the Bible says that the word of God is spirit. And if that is the case, that the word of God would come to them in spirit form. The spirit is him. I'm going to say this really clearly. I have to make sure this makes sense. The spirit is never an it. We use that language. Don't we? Man, the spirit was really moving today. I could feel it all around me. The spirit is not an it. It's him. It is him in the room. The presence of God is not an it. It is a him in the room. So let's tie all this together really nicely with a bow. Word of God comes. He speaks to you. His word is spirit, Jesus said. So every word is spirit. Spirit is him in the room in the full embodiment of his person. So his word comes, but his word is spirit. His spirit is him, and God defines himself as love. Every encounter you've ever had with God, I don't care if it made you fall on your face or run around the room, was an encounter with love. I don't care if it made you cry holy or if it made you cry in joy. It was love. Why? Because his word is spirit, he is spirit, and he is love. It's just that simple. So we're going to look at two um, uh, very similar, yet in some ways contrasting um, stories this morning. And before we do, I want to read this quote to you. I thought this might be something you would appreciate. Fears are educated into us. And if we wish, they might be educated out. Fears are educated into us. And if we so wish, they might be educated out. You find here in the Mount of Transfiguration, this incredible story of Jesus. And you find that. Matthew 17, four, I mentioned this earlier, um, four through seven, excuse me, is this great story where the Mount of Transfiguration happens. Jesus takes Peter, James and John on top of uh, this mountain. It's actually called Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is a very real place. It's in it's in uh, the Galilee area of Israel. You can still travel there. It's very easy to get to it's a very beautiful area and um, that they would they actually went up to this mountain to pray the clouds. Uh, uh, descended, the voice of God began to speak in a loud, booming voice. Behold, my beloved son, listen to him. The disciples, much as we all would do, freak out, fall on their faces. And Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Don't be in fear. The response of which they is, you know, the great story. They decide we're going to we need to build tabernacles. They look around and all of a sudden there's Moses and Elijah shows up. Can you, I mean, seriously, like, can you imagine all we went to go do is pray. And now all of a sudden there's a cloud that shows up. God speaks audibly in booming voice. Moses and Elijah are standing there and they look at Jesus and his face is brighter than the sun. I don't know what you say to that, right? I literally have no idea. Like, how do you process that? So this exchange happens, and the surrounding elements are absolutely incredible that they experience. Um, All of this happens. They fall on their faces. Jesus says, don't be afraid. They get up. They go down the mountain. They go down Mount Tabor, and as they get to the bottom of it, they encounter a young man that is um, possessed or troubled with demons. Jesus uh, casts the demons out. The rest of the disciples have been down there praying for this kid. Can't get anything done. Can't, Can't do it. Jesus goes down, uh, the the father uh, of the boy comes to him, Jesus prays for the boy, he's healed uh, miraculously, and it's it's great. You find that when uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke taught this or gave this account, they did so very clearly paralleling another mountain encounter. Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it's also known, is another mountain in Israel. This one's a lot different. Mount uh, Mount Tabor is very easy to get to. It's right in Galilee. It's a beautiful area. In fact, now there's a park there. It's very easy to walk up. It's an easy walk. Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, is in the middle of the wilderness. It's incredibly remote. You've got to drive a long way through the wilderness, through the desert to get there. It's even very, very difficult to go up once you're there. It's very ominous and and, and daunting and overwhelming to even see it, where Mount Tabor is, is very inviting. You think, oh, this is going to be neat. So you find that they really clearly compared or, or gave us this story in the context of Mount Sinai and the Famous encounter that Moses had with God there. And if you remember the exchange, you find that three months after Moses leads the child after the Exodus, after he leads them out, they find themselves in Mount Sinai, and God comes in a great cloud. He speaks to Moses or to the people as well from the the mountain. The people become terrified. In fact, they become so fear-stricken that they begged God to not speak to them anymore. And they asked Moses to go up the mountain for them. There, Moses encounters God and gives uh, Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. God, in this exchange, Moses asked God to see his face. If you remember correctly, uh, God says, no one can see my face. And um, Moses, uh, uh, you know, is entreating of him. And God says, you can't see my face, but I will cover your face as I pass by. And then I will allow you to see my back parts after I pass you as a result of this encounter. What you find is that Moses' face shines like the sun, it says. In fact, um, the, the story is that he he's shining like the sun. They ask him to veil his face. It's so bright they can't even look at it. He comes down the mountain, and what he finds is this debaucherous worship to the golden calf. He throws the Ten Commandments, God's law, down. And tells the Levites, which if you don't remember, the Levites are the tribe of Moses. This is his family. He tells them to execute anyone that they find worshiping the calf. This is clearly what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had in mind when they gave us the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. You don't find it in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's really clear. This is what they were trying to draw the parallel of. They were saying... This is a similar encounter, and while the similarities are interesting, all they're doing is creating a backdrop so that we can see the differences. The differences are absolutely startling. Um, The similarities start on both mountains, God comes in a cloud. On both mountains, God speaks and we hear his voice. On both, there are people that are terrified. And on both, someone's face begins to shine brightly. I mean, it's, it's incredible how similar it is. Let alone the fact that Moses shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So... The differences, though, is is really what I want to hone in on. On Mount Sinai, we cannot see the face of God. It's forbidden. We only see his back. On Mount Sinai, the people never overcome their fear. In fact, on their faces, terrified, they beg God to never speak to them again. At the base of Mount Sinai, sinners are executed. Mount Tabor, we see the face of God in Jesus. On Mount, Mount Tabor, Jesus invites them to not be afraid. And on Mount Tabor, we find healing and delivering ministered at the base of it as opposed to the execution of sinners. So the question is not um, it, 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 it is really not what do we sh- is, is there value in that, believe me Um, I think Pastor Crawford calls it the conversation. I love the Exodus 32, 33 uh, conversation between God and Moses. I love that. I think it's absolutely incredible. But I think that we have to understand that when God spoke on Mount Tabor, the first thing he said, keeping in mind, in the eyes of the disciples, there's nobody more revered than Moses and Elijah. of them when they would use the phrase the law and the prophets you've heard that term before literally the law was Moses and the prophets were Elijah so when they would talk about the law and the prophets there was uh, that the face of the law and the prophets were Moses and Elijah and it was all they had had however what God says to them on Mount Tabor God the father from heaven is behold this is my beloved son Listen to him. What does he, what's the first thing he says?
1: Don't be afraid.
0: The Bible actually describes in a few times in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. Most of you have heard these verses. I, I Believe me, I've spent, I probably have spent more time studying this topic as I would hope you Would expect from me before I say uh, some of the things we've been saying, then maybe I've ever spent on a sermon. I've looked at every single time. There's over 400 times that the word fears used in the Bible. I've looked at every single time. There's over 100 times that it references in some way, shape or form about or from God what fear is. I've looked at every single time. There's only one time that Jesus instructs us in the Gospels to. And in that instance is when he's talking about, and he's actually quoting, but we don't have time to get into that. He's talking about what it means that we would fear God, not man. It says to fear the one who can save your soul as opposed to the one who can end your life. We, we know that. And I would like to suggest to you that I'm not in any way saying this morning that we no longer should revere God. What I am saying is that in the same way that a parent would want to be respected and revered and cared for by their child. He wants that from us. But I would also suggest to you that terror was never his intent. And we've really not done the best job at depicting that God to the world. It's amazing to me. I don't know why I really was going to go down this line, um, but it's Memorial Day weekend. I thought, well, that's just that would just be a real downer to talk about the Puritan. And in some ways, um, masochist nature of our faith, we, for some reason, really like God as kind of ticked off. The way I would describe the American God, the Father, is Gandalf with a bad attitude. Remember that scene in the first Lord of the Rings where Gandalf comes in and, and he's um, he's dealing with um, uh, what's the first guy that had the ring? Frodo's uncle, Bilbo Baggins. Thank you, Noah. Uh, Bilbo Baggins, and 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 Bilbo's saying that that Gandalf's trying to take it, and that's the first time that you see Gandalf as not being kind and compassionate. He he takes Bilbo. He all of a sudden the 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 color and the light in the room changes, and his voice changes, and he says, "Bilbo Baggins," you know. He gets mad. That's God. That's who we think God is. Gandalf with a bad attitude been taught that in in fact i heard somebody say this the other day that even atheists in their mind believe in the puritan god what i mean by that is even somebody that doesn't believe in god if you had to ask them to describe the god they didn't believe in would describe gandalf with a bad attitude the puritan god the god that's angry the god that's ready to send people the god that has a uh, some type of rod up there that he's willing to smack you on the head with just to get your your thinking right your stinking thinking right Um, You know that's the God that even the atheists in America believe don't believe in. I should say why? Because it's just ingrained into us. It's this Puritan God, and what we have to understand is the God that came in this idea of don't. Be afraid is the God that's inviting us to know him as compassionate and peaceful and inclusive and loving. And that doesn't mean that we lay down our reverence to be able to embrace it. It means that our reverence becomes complete. In fact, the idea of the fear of the Lord being The beginning of knowledge. Here's what I would like to suggest as an idea. What if we viewed this in an incomplete way? Not wrong, just incomplete. The beginning of the knowledge of what? Fearing God is the beginning of the knowledge of what? The beginning of the knowledge of him. Is it possible that this is saying that the fear of God is the way we come before him? But as love is made perfect in us, fear is overwhelmed in his love. Is it possible that perfect love could cast out fear and him invite us to be brought into, into the perfection of love and at the same time us fear him? Does that make any sense? Because wouldn't it all, I'm just going to be really honest with you and as practical as I can be. Wouldn't it make sense that for in order for me to be afraid of him in whatever way I'm afraid of him, it would require perfect love to not have come to that place? Because if perfect love is there, fear has to leave. So a God that we're afraid of and a God that we tell other people to be afraid of is not the God that he is. And I would suggest to you that fear of God is important. I believe that the way you come to him is in fear, in a good fear, in the uh, introduction to, uh, to what reverence really is, in the introduction to what respect really is. But in the same way that you are – inter, I, I would put it this way. I was afraid of Regina in a different way than I was afraid of my mom, beyond the fact that she had a shank. I mean, that, that was part of the package. Uh, there's no doubt. But, uh, but there's, there is that kind of thing, you know, I mean, it's that kind of, that kind of reality. I think that what we have is that we have this thought that, that we're to retain that. And it's in some ways we, we pin our holiness on it. You know, we feel like that when God comes in the holiness and the reverence of who he is, that we are cowering bowing down to him out of fear. He's not asking you to bow down to him out of fear. He's asking you to bow down to him out of submission and obedience to be everything he wants to be as your father. He doesn't need you cowering. He wants you submitting. Also understanding, here's a crazy thought. Has God ever submitted to anything? I would like to suggest to you that your relationship with him is impossible if he hasn't. the supreme being, but doesn't it require him to submit himself to you that he entrusts you with everything he is and everything he has and doesn't get to determine what you do with it? I would like to suggest that that's the greatest submission you could ever get. So, in the Old Testament, you find that there is what I read when I was reading, so um, um, Tasha's and me and we've been having fun with this, but I've just been reading, just reading constantly. And one of the things that I was reading—I I, I know this is um, just light reading—I've uh, been reading the, the works of Saint Augustine, um, and um, you know, there's nothing like some, you know, like 11th or 12th century writings to really get you going. Um, but uh, I've been reading um, and studying as well the the um, Nicene. Um, which actually came up with what we know is called the Apostles' Creed, which we don't, uh, we don't really talk a whole lot about. We probably will. That's going to be another topic to come. But, um, but when you read about these guys, one of the things that amazes me in, their, in, in how they're talking, they, one of them referenced, and I'm going to give my language for it a little bit, but one of them referenced this Mount Sinai encounter, and he referenced it with an absolute appreciation. But what he said, if we stop with Mount Sinai, a back-of-God theology. Now, there's all kinds of... Uh, my phone's down there, I would show you. There's all kinds of really cool stuff that's happening today with facial recognition, right? In fact, I can pick up my iPhone and hold it in front of me and it'll turn on with facial recognition. I don't do that because uh, I, don't, I don't want that because, in my opinion, it's going to look like I'm selfie-ing all the time. Because you're kind of doing one of these. And I would feel like immediately I need kick uh, to follow put my hand on my you know and I don't know why the arm goes way out but it does it absolutely does this really thins me out Um, but I feel like that that's what would happen if if I had the facial recognition turned on uh, but that is this uh, that's there's that technology's there in fact, there's you know tons of it. They've been using this for years in, in governments, right that they'll use facial recognition technology to get you know into secured areas. Um, there's a reason we don't use back recognition technology. In fact, one of the most cool uh, one of the coolest studies I've read in a while has, was a study about how our brain works and the way that we can recognize somebody by their face. Have you ever heard somebody uh, say before, man, I, I, gosh, I just know their face. I can't think of their name. You know, I'm, I'm not a names guy, but, man, their face, I just know. When's the last time you've heard somebody say, well, I can't remember their name, but that back sure looks familiar. Isn't that weird? So why would we stop with a back of God theology? saying that what happened with Moses wasn't God I'm just saying when you look at somebody's back you don't get all the details right some of what we have to understand is that God is absolutely in the midst of a lot of the things that we have interpreted from encounters that we find other than who Jesus is but the reality is some of the details get skewed because when you don't get to see their face There's details that get lost. Why would we want to stay on this remote Mount Sinai mountain where we live in fear of him? Where uh, uh, the result, I I didn't even have time to get in the fact that the result of this, I'm telling you. Back of God theology where we try to make out and we infer things about who God is and about how he thinks is what then causes us to take our swords at the base of the mountain and execute people who don't think like us, execute people who aren't worshiping like us, execute people who aren't acting the way we think they should act. Jesus comes down the mountain when they see his face and he heals the demonic, not kills him. For being involved in demonic activity. And, and hopefully. Uh, metaphorically. Um, we understand. you know, When we're talking about this. But we've been killing people for years. Based on back of God theologies. We've been killing people for years. We've been isolating people for years. We've been executing them. Based on theologies. That are not wrong. They're just not full. Jesus didn't come to say everything else you thought and saw about God was wrong. He said it was incomplete. He didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. He came to fill in the gaps. It's like a puzzle where you only have half the pieces. You cannot expect the picture to be correct and clear. In fact, I was talking to Pastor Fabian. He was telling me he does this really goofy thing. I hate puzzles. I hate them hate them if if hell is real and i have to go there i am going to have to do puzzles for the rest of eternity because i'm just telling you if this message is what sends me there which many people would probably say uh then then my hell is going to be crossword puzzles and real puzzles because i hate them pastor fabian does this really funny thing where he'll buy like a thousand piece puzzle and throw the box away he really loves the idea of trying to lay it out and imagine what it could, would look like without having anything to go off of. And he told me one time that he had spent a month on a puzzle thinking it was a picture of a dog, and it was actually a person riding a bike down the road. Totally missed it. Totally missed it. There, uh, that, that Why? Because when you, the picture is off, you, the, the details all get messed up. When Perry Stone spends 40,000 hours studying eschatology and end-of-times um, uh, theology, but is studying it with the wrong thought of who God is in the first place, everything else is going to be wrong. Everything else is going to be skewed when who God is is not accurate. So we find uh, two scriptures, and, and, and we're going to quickly hit these, 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 7. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. But of power, love, and a sound mind. Romans eight thirteen. I don't have time to go into the fact that what that at least implies is that being of sound mind, which means emotionally well, in power and in love, not going to happen when you're functioning in the spirit of fear. I think there's Christians who have lived heavily medicated
1: because they've not learned who God really is.
0: Because if you think that he doesn't like you, if you think he loves you because he has to and it's the rules, it's going to throw everything else off. If you think That the holier you are, the more scared of God. If we believe in this hell house, heaven's gates, hell's flames, um, you know, uh, chick track version of who God is, that he's angry and he's ready to rip your head off as soon as you mess up. And the only thing standing between you and him is Jesus saying, God, don't kill him. We're going to be wrong. did not come to change God's mind about us. He came to change our mind about God. Romans 8.13 For if we live after the flesh, you will die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, I know this is obvious, Does God want you bound, or did Jesus come to set at liberty the captive? But you have received the spirit of adoption whereby you cry, Abba Father. I would also like to suggest to you that you can't know Father and be in fear of Him. The more you know Father, Abba Father, you will have a reverence that is well and is good. And it's whole in the same way that you respect and care for um, your earthly parents. No different. The way that you, the way there is a camaraderie. I, I, I'll say this. I, I heard a preacher preaching this. It's somebody that I really like. Doesn't it drive you crazy when people that you really like get it wrong? It just bothers me. I'm like, oh, man, you were so close. <laughs> um, but it, it's like that operation thing where you're like almost in there and all of a sudden, mm, it's like, ah. Oh. You know, you're right there. Well, it's, it, he was talking about this, and he was talking about love versus fear, and he said anybody that says that you, can't, that you can't love God and also fear him has never been married. And while that's a cute joke, that's a really, really poor version of what a marriage should look like. I'm just being honest. If I'm scared of my wife, I'm probably not version of that if i'm scared of my wife i'm probably guilty of something or we just don't have an equal relationship maybe that's another way to say it i'm just being honest i i now do i respect her absolutely do my decisions and choices weigh in the respect i have for her absolutely absolutely but I'm sorry this everybody loves Raymond mentality, sitcom mentality about how relationships are supposed to work where the dad's just some goofball that wants to go drink beer and play sports and try to get avoid getting yelled at by his wife has absolutely infiltrated so many of the things that we think, and it's inaccurate. It is not supposed to be that way. If you're afraid of your spouse, there is a problem. Period. There is a problem, and you will never respect them well when you fear them. You will fear them just enough to stay out of trouble. And speeding and not getting caught doesn't mean you didn't break the law. So my point is that analogy, while cute, and it gets a good laugh in a crowd, I think it's a little bit dangerous because I do believe that love perfected only has one end result. Fear diminished. It has to be that way. In fact, I've been reading some writings by St. Anthony the Great. St. Anthony the Great was one of the Early century leaders that determine what we believe. Literally, these guys had to sit down, look at the teachings of Jesus, and come up with what we believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. He died and was resurrected. He was born of the Virgin Mary, all that stuff. This guy was one of the leaders of this council. This is what he said. I no longer fear God, but I love him, for his love casts out fear. the place we can begin the journey. It's how we first take God seriously. It's the only starting point, and we must not stay there. Yes, I understand the Bible commends the fear of God, and I do too, but only as a preliminary beginning. God desires us to grow beyond the rudimentary beginning of fear. First John 4.16 from the Passion Translation says, God is love. Those who are living in love are living in God, and God lives through them. By living in God, love has been brought to all of us in the fullness of its expression in so that we may fearlessly face the day of judgment. Because all that Jesus now is, so are we in this world. That, we could spend a lot of time on that. All that Jesus is right now, so are we in this world.
1: Did Jesus ever say that he was afraid of the
0: Just in case in the back of your mind, one of your thoughts is, well, wait a minute, Jesus said to not be afraid, but that's not talking about God the Father, that's just Jesus. Well, what I would like to remind you is that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father.
1: All that God is, is found in Jesus. Jesus is perfect.
0: Or excuse me, for fear is always related to punishment, right? Why? Because fear deals with being guilty. Fear deals with being condemned. Fear deals with punishment. God is not into punishment. He doesn't work that way. God is into restoration. He will never judge you with that with He will never judge you lacking the intent to restore never judges you against where you missed the mark. He only judges you with the intent to bring you into what the mark was. But love's perfection drives out the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not le- reached love's perfection. Our love for others is our grateful response to the love of God that was first demonstrated to us. So, yes, I understand the Bible commends the fear of God, but only as a rudimentary beginning. The good news is that God revealed through Jesus does not belong in the same category as Mars and Moloch and Ares and Zeus and all the other Greek gods that absolutely affected how we view our one true God. Those are false gods of our frightened and shame laden imaginations. The Creator God, the one true God, is not vengeful, He's not violent. And he's not like the other gods of that primitive pantheon. In his triumph, Jesus put those petty and vindictive gods out of business. And the hands of God are not hurling thunderbolts at you. The hands of God have scars. They were nailed to the tree as he forgave us and forgave the monstrous evil of the world. And the hands of God are now inviting us to walk with him in the depths of a relationship that has romance at the core. And he invites you into from fear into love. Because perfect love casts it out. So I'd like to suggest to you today that I, I in no way intend to um, to demean, to depict, um, to declare that, that everybody else is wrong. I would only like to give the idea, the thought, the suggestion that God is more... Been better than we thought. And he was so aware that he was better than we thought that he put on flesh to show us. Not so that we could um, no longer need God the Father, but so that we could better understand who he was. Jesus didn't save us from God the Father. He's not the loving brother or the loving Savior and and then there's this other God up there. God is Jesus. Everything about him is who he is. And part of what we have to understand is, I honestly believe until we see him like he actually is, we're not going to be able to revere him correctly, respect him correctly and engage in a relationship that is an exchange of that exchange, he wants not to be the priority, the number one on our list, he wants to be the list. He's not just saying, bow everything else to my knee, I want to be number one, and then comes, you know, God, and family, and country. He so transcends those lists, he wants to be the central theme of the entire list, that in your family, and in your country, and in your job, and in your car, and in church and in your home, that he is there. And in that, we have nothing to be afraid of. So I would suggest to you today that he simply says this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And more than anything, we have to embrace it so that we can correctly depict it. Because Westboro Baptist Church understands it's their job to represent God same way we understand it's our job to represent God, but who we represent is important, and what we represent is important, and we need to get it right, because there's people out there who have been told that he is something he's not. So, I know this is a a big topic, and I know this is something that can be challenging, um, and as I said, please know that I, I encourage you, weigh these things in your heart. I didn't, I didn't decide to teach this because, you know, I've heard a real good sermon. I decided to teach this because what I was realizing more and more was every time I encountered God, I was encountering a God that was different than I thought he was. It was different than I'd been taught he was in the Bible. And I could no longer stand to let those opposing realities exist in my being. Is Who I've experienced and Jesus came to show us that So father we love you We are so grateful that we have this This um, this privilege this honor this opportunity to know you To walk with you to experience the real of who you are And we will not shy away from the tough questions to find out what's real God, we do not want to be divisive uh, for divisiveness sake. We do not want to be difficult or, or be uh, uh, obstructive or be in any way arrogant. But, Father, we recognize that unknowing and undoing is the invitation to right knowing and doing. And we want to know you well. We want to see you well. We want to have the, the correct prescription lenses that we view you through so that then as we describe you, as we demonstrate you, as, as we represent you to others, that we do that well. Being able to assure everyone, whether they are a Christian or not, whether they are um, um a a Protestant Christian or not, whether they are any other thing, whether they even think you exist, that father, we can just simply stand and say that whether or not they believe in you, you believe in them. You love them. And at that moment and in that way, they are no further from than they can be after they've known you for years because they're no further from you because nothing can separate us from you and you are love. So even at that moment, your love surrounds them. Help us to make them aware of how close your love really is. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Everybody have a great Memorial Day weekend. And we certainly are grateful for this this country and what we get to celebrate on this holiday. Please take a few moments and give some consideration to what this holiday represents and what this holiday means. Um, and uh, And that we would really give thought to that. Thoughtfulness counts, right? So thank you. Have a good day.